So having uh, defeated Goliath, David is at the end of the text we looked at last week, at the end of 1 Samuel 17, he's brought to Saul. And he shows up with the head of the Philistine in his hands. And a conversation ensues between David and Saul, for which, apparently, Jonathan, Saul's son, is present. And that brings us to the opening of chapter 18, which is our text this morning. And we'll look at it under the three headings that are in the back inside page of your bulletin. Love, madness, and favor. So 1 Samuel 18 then, first love. David, we know, is already anointed as king, although virtually no one else knows it. And with the defeat of Goliath, he's becoming a national hero. And he's taken into the service of the king. And he gets a lot of love in this passage. Jonathan, Saul's son, is said to love him twice. All of Israel and Judah is said to love him. That's pretty widespread. Love. Saul's daughter, Michael, loves David, the text says. All the king's attendants love David. He's the man of the hour, as you might imagine. And after the conversation uh, with Saul, Jonathan, we are told, became one in spirit. Or had his spirit knit with David. He loved him, the text says, as himself. And this bond, as I'm sure many of you are familiar with, this is a this is the bond which is forged in this text is very deep and long-lasting and shapes the story. It has this emotional heart-to-heart dimension, as all true friendship does. Right? It's spoken of here as the knitting together of spirits. And it immediately embraces, it appears, with delight, the golden rule. The golden rule, in this case, applied with a certain intensity to the other. He loved him as himself. So, let's notice three things about this love that Jonathan has for David. The first thing is this. It rejoices. And and what we have here is all the more remarkable when we remember that Jonathan is much older than David. I think in the popular imagination, we picture them as peers. They are not peers. They are not about the same age. David became king at age 30. Saul, we know, reigned 40 years which means David was born in the 10th year of Saul's reign. But in the third year of Saul's reign, we know that Jonathan was fighting for Saul. And we know that you had to be at least 20 to be a fighting soldier in Israel, which means Jonathan is at least 27 years older than David. He is the king's son. He is a middle-aged man. He's an accomplished military leader. He has won critical victories. He's a warrior in its own right. And if anyone would be understandably jealous, 
or perhaps envious. Jealousy wants what the other person has. Envy just doesn't want them to have it. If anyone would have these sentiments, it would be Jonathan. And yet Jonathan rejoices in David's accomplishment, in his fame, in his success. He's neither jealous nor envious. Jealousy and envy are poisons. They are poisons. They are deep in the bones of American political life. And they are deep in the bones of many humans. And a very good part of maturity, a good part of avoiding bitterness, is rejoicing in the gifts and the accomplishments of others. Even if, in this case, they're young, and their gifts are not yet refined, and their gifts are not yet held in a balanced way. Jonathan sees this. And there's a certain sweet reasonableness about this, isn't there? Because, I mean, of the abundant river of gifts that God the Creator has poured out on the human race, only a few of them are ours. I mean, if you stop to think about this, if you're not going to celebrate the gifts of others, you are not going to celebrate very much. And that means you're likely to be miserable. But this is a key to your mental health, to celebrate the gifts, the fame, the success of other people. This is instinctively right what well-integrated people do when they love art and literature and culture and music and sports, whatever. Right? They're celebrating the talents of other people. And it's easy for someone older someone more experienced, someone with a resume like Jonathan to say, it would go something like this, I think. Yes, this is a marvelous feat David has performed. But he's still young, you know, and he lacks this. And we should wait, and we should see about this. Right? There's a myriad of ways to subtly or not so subtly undermine rejoicing in the gifts of others. Right? You can damn with faint praise. You can praise with all sorts of qualifications and caveats. Or perhaps for some dour souls, maybe you don't praise at all. You know, there's something not right about David. Something in that young man concerns me. None of that for Jonathan. By the way, he never had every reason for that. He would have every reason to qualify and qualify and qualify. But there's not a shred of turf protecting here. There's not a shred of pettiness. He's genuinely magnanimous. I love that word, magnanimous. It means great-souled, large-souled. It means a person like this has a certain catholicity of personality. They have a certain universality about them. They are generous. They are embracing. They have a certain elasticity. Their soul is stretched to embrace. They're magnanimous. Jonathan is magnanimous, which is why he's been such a beloved figure in the history of the church. It's why there's so many little Christian Jonathans running around all over the place. Love does not envy. It does not boast. Jonathan loves. Love also rejoices in the truth. 
Right? And Jonathan sees the truth of what David has accomplished. And he almost surely sees something of the greatness, the magnanimity of David's own soul. And thus he rejoices in David's victory and his fame. Secondly, the second thing about this love is it blesses. It's not just a knitting of spirits. It's not just an attitude. It acts. Jonathan makes a covenant. He makes a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. He takes the initiative here. This covenant is a bond of friendship and loyalty. It is the love. It is the knitting. It is the affection taking public, political, official shape. Love is not just affection. It's covenantal obedience. Covenantal loyalty. There's a wonderful scholar at Harvard in the program of Jewish studies, Jewish scholar named John Levinson, has a book called On the Love of God in in the Hebrew Bible and in Judaism. And, And the burden of the book is to show that love is both obedience to God's commands and affection for God, to love God with all of your soul and with all of your might and with all of your vitality. And, it's, and you can't split these things apart. Love has a sort of public, legal, covenantal dimension and a deeply subjective, affectionate dimension. And that's the kind of love that David and Jonathan forge together here. This is a love which blesses and forms covenants. And it's, it, this love, will, this covenant dimension will play out in the decades ahead. And it's critical to the rise of David. Finally, notice this. The love gives. This is the third thing about the love. Verse 4. Jonathan takes off his robe, his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, to see the nature of this generosity, you have to recall that Jonathan is the successor to his father's throne. He's the crown prince, even though he's older. So this act is essentially transferring the right of succession to David. I mean, think about that. David has just appeared on the scene. Yes, he's done one grand act. This is akin to Jonathan abdicating his right to the throne. He's not saying, hey, David, I've got some extra stuff here. I got some old clothes that I don't really use anymore. You're welcome to take them if you like. He's divesting himself of his royal treasures and his military garb. And he's given them to one who, you know, and and maybe Jonathan has an instinct for this, to one who is the true king. Jonathan doesn't know about the anointing, as far as we know. So this is an act of a magnanimous soul, right? It's an act of generosity and nobility and self-emptying. And you'll remember, David would not wear Saul's armor. He did not want to be a king like the nations. But he wears this stuff. He takes this stuff. He accepts this gift. And the scene ends by telling us that David goes forth on missions and he has great success. Saul promotes him to a high rank in the army. Even the troops and the officers love David. You could see it's natural and deep in us, to not like a person like this. And that brings me to my second point, which is madness. And here the narrative backs up just a little bit in time. 
to right after the slaying of Goliath, as the men return home, it says the women came out from all the towns. They come, they come out to meet Saul with singing and dancing. They have instruments. And they sing this little song. A little rural country music lyric. What could go wrong? Here's how it goes. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This is almost certainly, we can't be sure, of course, but it's almost certainly not intended as a slight to Saul. It's not intended as a slight. In Hebrew poetry, the second line is parallel to the first, right? It just restates the first line, usually with a little rhetorical flourish or a little intensification. There are six things that the Lord hates, even seven. See the intensification, right? Even seven, the heightening, even seven which he cannot stand. But the second line is not meant to denigrate the first line or replace the first line or surpass the first line. The point of the lyric is probably this. Saul and David have conquered great numbers together. It's a poem. It's not geometry. It's a poem. It's just that the demands of the poetic form require escalation in the second line. Notice as well, the text says that the women, the singing women, come out to meet King Saul. They come out to meet King Saul with dancing. And the poem mentions him first. But Saul lacks Jonathan's generosity. He is more like the peevish older brother in the prodigal son. He's full of envy. And envy always distorts one's perspective. Saul is always worried, as we'll see. And it's a great study that the writer of this book gives us over the next few chapters. He's worried about the balance of power. He was very angry, the text says. And that leads to more distortion. You can hear this self-absorbed whining. David is credited with tens of thousands. And I'm only credited with a thousand. Like a child. And he darkly senses the future. What more can he have now but the kingdom? What more can he have but the kingdom? So what's starting to happen here is envy leads to irrational paranoia. I mean, after all, the kingdom has already been stripped from Saul in plain language. He can't hold on to it. Yet somehow this dynamic of self-deception is such that he either does not believe the prophetic oracle of Samuel that the kingdom has been stripped, or he decides to suppress it. But in any event, Saul is clinging to power which he knows deep down he cannot keep. And so what does he do? He starts spying. That's what he does. He starts keeping a close eye, spying on David. The same power that Samuel uh, went on a diatribe against in in chapter 8, when Samuel gives that famous, you better not have a king or he's going to do this to you speech. The power to tax and the power to conscript 
that same power can turn and spy on and hunt its own citizens. And that's already beginning to happen in the book of Samuel. This is the emotional state of Saul now, which is very fragile. And a day later, this evil or harmful spirit from God ultimately comes upon Saul. He is under God's judgment and he is now emotionally disturbed. And I hope to say more about the nature of this spirit as we go on in this text in subsequent weeks. But let me just make this point now. Whatever one wants to say about this, quote, harmful or evil spirit from the Lord, the writer is clear about this, that all of the events in Israel's history take place on the front of the stage, and in the back is the God of Israel who is untamable, dreadful, and mysterious, and will not be chaperoned into some convenient box. And if you trifle with him, it does not go well. And Saul has been trifling. He is under God's judgment. He is now unraveling. There is no vacuum. When you reject the Holy Spirit, you don't just subtract something from your life. You take on a certain malign spirit. So he is said, Saul, to be prophesying, but here the word means raving. So he's overcome by some sort of crazed spirit. Right? There is a fine line, beloved, between religiosity or maybe and, and uh, madness, or charismatic ecstasy and madness, or true mysticism and being untethered from reality. And Saul is messing with that line right now. He's just at the beginning of messing with it. It gets much worse. So David is there. He's in in humility. He's playing the lyre. Of course, David's a poet and a musician, too. He has all the gifts. I mean, he's a young poet. His poetry will get better as he gets older. But anyway, there's David playing. But his presence is a part of what is now driving Saul mad. This is not an unfamiliar dynamic psychologically, right? This sort of gifted, charismatic, anointed presence drives people like Saul mad. And David, you know, Saul tries to pin him with this spear. Twice David eludes him. David apparently thinks at this point that this is just a mood thing. Madness may be troubling and erratic, but not malicious, murderous intent. And we're told three times in the text, three times, Saul was afraid of David. Because the Lord was with David and had departed from Saul, that is the root of Saul's psychosis. There's a kind of God-forsakenness here. You will fear all the wrong things without the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God casts out all fear. So the anointing, the Spirit for kingship, has passed from Saul to David. And thus the text tells us the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. And so, think about this. A, a, A peevish, envious, resentful spirit taking affronts at innocent remarks can lead to the stuff of murder eventually. This is the sign that the spirit has departed. And so what Saul does next is he advances a plan to give his older daughter, Mirab, to David. 
in return for David's commitment to fight bravely against the Philistines in the battles of the Lord. Of course, he's trying to get David killed, put him on the front lines, much like David would later do with Uriah. One should note the advanced depravity, even this early in Saul's personal descent into hell, because that's what's happening to Saul in this narrative. Saul is now willing to involve his daughter in his own twisted vendetta. He's willing to inflict on his daughter a lifetime of sorrow from having her husband killed if it removes a rival to the throne, a throne which he cannot keep. David balks at the offer. He says, who am I? What is my family in Israel? One of the things you notice about this narrative is David doesn't talk a lot. It's the narrator's way of creating a kind of aura around David. Everybody else talks. Everybody else loves David. We're not told that David loves anybody. It's not that he doesn't. We're just not told. It's a, it's a narratival device. So when David does talk, you really have to pay attention. So when he says, who am I? What is my family in Israel? We're left with this magnificent studied ambiguity. Because we know David does have ambition. And we know that when David went to kill the Philistine, the first thing he said when he got to the front was, what's the reward the king's offering again? Oh, I get to marry the king's daughter. And I get free from taxation? He knew about that. Now the king comes and says, I want you to marry my daughter. And David's like, oh, who am I? Who, who am I? So we don't know. Maybe it's humility, but it smells political to me. In any event, Saul retracts the offer at the last minute. But then he learns that another daughter, Michael, was actually in love with David. Well, this pleases him. He's willing to sacrifice her as well. But he needs some way to entice David to maybe overcome his reticence. David's poor. He doesn't have the money for the dowry, the bride price. So Saul concocts this strategy of bring me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Right, it's, uh, you want to be accepted in the crime syndicate? You're going to have to commit some brutal crimes. And the plan is, is still unknown to anyone, but the narrator and us, it's to have David again fall by the hands of the Philistines. He takes his men, he goes out, he exceeds expectations, he kills 200 Philistines. Brings their foreskins to Saul, Saul now has to, he's forced, his plan has failed. He gives him Michael, his daughter in marriage who we still don't know that David loves. We know she loves him. That brings me to the third point, favor. The text overflows with these images of God's favor to David. In short, God is with David. And that's everything. That really is the secret to the story. It is more than sufficient. We already know this, but Saul is realizing it. Verse 28 is critical. It says Saul realized that the Lord was with David. Even in his pathological state, he can figure out where the Lord's favor rests. And this only deepens his fear. It hardens him in enmity toward David. Again, it's really important to see how irrational this is. The Lord being with David means Saul cannot possibly succeed. Nevertheless, this descent into this irrational darkness cannot be stopped. 
As usual, this kind of madness only consumes the raving madman. It never consumes your enemies. So David continues to enjoy success, the text says. He continues raiding the Philistines. He has this shield of divine protection. The Lord is David's keeper, the shade on his right hand. He watches his going out, his coming in. Four times in the text, we are told of his success. Favor leads to success. It leads to being highly esteemed and loved by the whole nation, by everyone, really, it appears, except one person, Saul, whose isolation is a large part of his madness. So I want to conclude. And what I want to do here in the conclusion is I want to change the order of the three points and say something about love, something about favor, and then something about madness. So first, love. Right? We see here in Jonathan, in his divesting of himself, of his royal status, right? his stripping off of his dignity, his laying aside of his rights, we see something which points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? who, though he was rich beyond all splendor, all for your sake became poor. Right? Jonathan was the type of friend who would lay down his life for his friends. He did not consider equality with the king, even though he was the king's son, a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself in order to clothe his friend, to clothe David. Yet, while Jonathan's act, right, his his noble act, entails laying aside the right to an earthly monarchy. Christ laid aside the glory of the everlasting God, the splendor of the second person of the Holy Trinity in communion with the Father and the Spirit as king over the whole creation. Jonathan's gift comes after David's triumph. Christ's Descent to clothe us comes after our sin and our shame and our disgrace. He enters into a depth of solidarity with his beloved, only hinted at by Jonathan, only dimly pointed to. He lays down his life while we were still his enemies to make us his friends. As the hymn puts it, what a friend we have in Jesus. Who can find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jonathan's love was great. The Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely greater. For it comes from greater heights. It stoops to greater depths. And its object is not a national hero, but it's you and me in all of our brokenness and need. That is the gospel of God's love seen in Jonathan. Secondly, favor. David is highly favored. The text is emphatic. The Lord is with him. In this, he's also a foreshadowing of Christ, who is the Davidic king and who indeed is Emmanuel, God with us. So in the text, both Jonathan and David 
point us to the grace, the humility, the nearness of God in Jesus Christ. God is with David, and his favor rests fully on the heir of David, namely Jesus. One way to put it is this. God was with David, but God comes as Jesus and is now with us in a richer, deeper, more profound way of sympathy and suffering. That's the favor that God has shown us. And that brings me to madness. Saul is a pathological case, to be sure. But we can see a large swath of the profile of our own sin in him. Envy, fear, jealousy, an agitated spirit, paranoia, suspicion, Raving, raving like a madman, anger, murderous hatred, callousness, turf-protecting anxiety. All triggered in this text by an uncharitable reading of the words and intentions of others. After all, it was a poem that set him off here. He heard the wrong song on the radio. In him... And this is what I want us to see about this. There's a whole bunch of psychological lessons we could talk about. But here we learn that sin is a deep kind of irrational derangement. It is a descent into madness. It will destroy those who are mastered by it. And it is just this corrosive unraveling, this personal descent into hell, which the love and favor of God and Jesus Christ are sent to save us from. The gospel is deeper than your madness, than your irrationality, than your fears, than your darkness, than your shame. This stooping love seen in Jonathan's self-emptying, the abundant favor seen in God being with David, These are revealed in fullness, right? In infinite fullness in the anointed messianic Davidic king, Jesus Christ, who saves us from our madness, from our personal bent towards self-destruction. This is why we need the gospel. The gospel is meant to remedy the human condition. And the human condition must first be unveiled then as madness. Let your heart be knit to the son of David in love, for he has bound himself to you. He has made a covenant and sealed it with his own blood. Love the Lord, whose love and favor deliver us from madness and restore us to sanity. Amen.